another episode of Thick and Thin Hoops, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nitin. What's good, Nitin? What's up, man? I gotta say, I'm thrilled to to officially announce I'm finally having fun with this NBA season. Um, it took us a while to get there. We weren't sure if we would during the dog days of December and January load management, but it feels like coming out of the All-Star break, we talked about how late in the season the All-Star break was. It was the right time for a recharge, a reset, and basically every team who has playoff aspirations has been full go, uh, short of real injuries like a LeBron or Zion. But everybody else, we're seeing them on the court every night. It's a ton of fun. It feels like every other night we we have a game of the year candidate, whether it's uh, Kings Clippers, Heat Knicks, Sixers Bucks. I mean, Mavs Suns. It's it's been electric. I'll say this. I've been having fun all season watching the Kings. Uh, obviously, this has been a historic season for us. So you guys are late to the party. This has been, from game one, been an awesome season. But to your point, I, it, the intensity has ratcheted up. The load management <clears throat> is seemingly happening less and less. Uh, all the stars are playing. The games are close. The games are going into overtime. We're getting a lot of good matchups, too. Like, right off the bat, the first couple weeks after All-Star break, I feel like all the heavyweights, they probably planned it this way, um, are playing in these really big-time games. That also is probably true, right? The TV schedule is naturally picking up where we're getting these marquee matchups. But we're still a little bit slowed by injuries at night like tonight. Mavs, Pelicans, you have no Zion, obviously. Then Brandon Ingram goes out in the first half. So some of these things are unavoidable. You know, we have we have Grizzlies, Warriors tomorrow night. We we obviously will get into the jaw situation at some point today. So still a little bit of turbulence, but we're we're rocking and rolling. There's there's what twenty games left for teams, and so even less for for several teams. And so we're talking. By the way, March eighth, the Kings are in second place in the West. I mean, this is just unbelievable. I'm sure for you. Yeah, put put the banner up. Second place on March eighth, twenty twenty three. It's it's insane, man. Like the the way the whole season's progressed, where at one point we're like, oh my god, I can't believe we're the eighth seed, and then oh my god, we're six, then four, then three, and then two. It's like we might end up as one. You know, who knows? At this rate, I would not yeah. be surprised. But w- speaking of big games, I, I definitely do want to talk to you about that epic Bucks Sixers matchup that happened. Was it last week? Um, it was last Saturday because yeah. you were in the building live to watch the Sixers squeak that one out against the Bucks. So, give us your your reactions, your your live takes. What did it look like watching that amazing game in person? Yeah, so I think so. To set the context, this is a yearly trip that a bunch of guys in Chicago make. We'll find a good Saturday night game that the Bucks are involved in. Take the Amtrak up, hit up some Milwaukee bars, which are always first class, as you know. Um, from your time in the key several, several years ago. Um, then we'll go to the game uh, afterwards, maybe pick another spot or two. Suddenly we're at the Powhatan Casino, next thing you know, and it's 1 a.m. and we're headed back to Chicago. So the whole trip is like 12 hours. It's actually the perfect amount of time to be in Milwaukee with all due respect. But, um, you know, the game, there's three main things I would say about the game. The n- number one thing is the stadium, Fisser Forum, is stunning. It is an absolutely beautiful stadium. Everything about it feels awesome. It has that brand new feel, but it doesn't seem too corporate. It doesn't seem too like, you know, I think you were talking about SoFi Stadium was almost like the game was a sideshow to everything else going on. It feels like the the, the 
the game is still the central part of being there, but it's just incredible, right? The lines are good. The sight, the the sights from pretty much wherever you're sitting are good. And I think I mentioned this last year in the pod, but I went to the Fisher Forum for the NCAA tournament because Virginia Tech was playing Texas. So it was the second time I'd been in the stadium, but obviously having the home team there makes a huge difference in terms of crowd noise and intensity. So that's number one. Number two, it is unbelievable when you think about the level that guys like Giannis and Embiid are playing at right now where it didn't even look like they were necessarily having phenomenal games. And you look up at the scoreboard and they both got 30 plus and has got 10 assists. Giannis got a ton of rebounds. And, and, you know, that's just a testament to their greatness. It's like the production, like slowing them down, quote unquote, is, doesn't mean anything much beyond like not letting them get 40 on you. Everything else is like pretty much gravy and it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. And third, absolute turn back the clock performance from Harden watching him slice up that defense live. I think he had 19 in the fourth. One of the things, and you know this when you're at a game live, you don't really follow the stats yep. and I feel like the pace and scoring quite the same way. So I do have a recollection of it being 95, 77 um, bucks and sort of thinking the game was kind of teetering towards an end and Harden just goes nuts. He basically destroys anyone. The bucks throw him, throw at him, including drew holiday um, Embiid makes a bunch of timely plays down the stretch. And I don't know, man, like it didn't tell me anything I didn't know. Like I still like the Bucks more than anyone in the East. And I still respect the hell out of Philly. But all I could think is get me to April ASAP, right? Like we need these matchups. We need the Celtics Sixers or Celtics Bucks, like all of these things that are right on the precipice. I think they're going to be absolute wars in both conferences. It, yeah, they're going to be great. That Harden performance really was turn back the clock. Um, was getting anything he wanted. It was, and and he, we haven't seen that. He's been really good, but we have not seen him assert that kind of offensive dominance. And they put up what forty eight in that last. Was it forty eight points in the fourth? Um, yeah, I remember it was something. something insane. I don't even know. Yeah, something um, crazy. But, I mean, he had twenty himself. But I totally feel you about the you lose track of the stats, especially fourth quarter. You're probably I don't know how many beers deep. Like you're not. <laughs> I'm not going to disclose that number on the podcast. This is <laughs> um, a family show. But, but you know, it's cool that the arena is really good because I remember when we went to the Key in <laughs> 2016 for that playoff game against the Raptors, that was in their old arena, which felt very, very dated. Um, and it was, yeah. I mean, it was a cool arena in the sense the fans were awesome, but it, from like a just aesthetics and just the feel of it, it felt very old, so cool to see that the new one is is awesome and i for folks who are listening like we went in i think it was actually 2017 oh yeah the bucks had just gotten good and they were the seven seed versus the two seed raptors like uh larry and the 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 bucks came back from 25 down to almost win and ended up losing that was actually the night they got eliminated in round one yep it wasn't until the next season that Giannis turned into a superhero and suddenly they were the one seed but we were there with them on the ground floor, man. Old stadium before they were the shit like they are now. Like we really are the original Bucks fans. And those tickets were cheap. Like people weren't yeah, they on were. the, the hype train yet. You know. Uh but yeah, that was that was cool. But yeah, it was a great game to be at, man. And I think um well I want to talk MVP because uh yeah. there's been a lot of chatter and now that we just talked about Giannis and Beat, it might be a good time to dovetail into this discussion. So I know you had a lot of thoughts about the Jokic conversations that have been going around. So maybe I'll let you start there. Uh, what do you want to say about the MVP race right now? 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting, right? There's obviously a lot left in the season, so I don't think either you or me are trying to make a pick for MVP right now. There's a lot to prove, a lot to get after it. I was just thinking about it, and we don't need to turn this into first take, but the the it's interesting because this is one of the things J.J. Redick talked about, which is like we create basketball narratives that don't actually exist, and that's what they did, right? They put this thought into my head that I wasn't necessarily going after, but now I look at it, I'm like, there's a lot of nuance to the conversation about Jokic winning three straight. Uh, put aside race for a second, right? The first is just it's never been done by a non-champ, right? Russell, Wilt, and Bird have all had all won championships uh, during that stretch. So that's one piece. Two is he is probably the least proven playoff um, performer of any two-time MVP, maybe even single-time MVP in recent history, right? When you think about one Round three appearance, they lost 4-1 to the Lakers in the bubble. Really is, you know, got swept uh, in two years ago in round two, lost in five in round one. And I love Jokic more than almost any player in the league, as you know. But I do feel like what has happened, and I don't know that it's necessarily a race-driven thing, but it is like a familiarity and sort of like relational-driven thing. of people gravitate to a guy, they feel like they can understand better as a basketball player, meaning the cerebral or not that athletic or sort of doing things that they're like, Oh yeah, I can do. And it's something that we've talked about as it relates to the affinity for Stephen Curry over a guy like LeBron James, who any media person would have less chance of being than you know, becoming president of the United States. So like, that's the type of thing that I feel like drives some of this. And I think it's subconscious. So I, I, I don't want to dismiss, I guess the overarching point that there are some biases associated with it. That being said, I also don't think it's unreasonable reasonable to say I don't want to give a guy a three-time MVP even if he deserves it on each individual year because that is hallowed ground like what is the point of all this conversation about legacy and all-time rankings and hall of fame and the pyramid and the top 75 if not for these types of seminal moments creating people's resumes that you want to be as close to what they actually were as players in their era and that's kind of where I start with some of this which is like I think him winning three straight he has deserved it in every year. Other guys have deserved it in every year. I just don't like the matter of fact way people are going about it on both sides because I think it's disingenuous. I think it's intentionally dishonest. And it doesn't get to like the core part problem, which is like if you voted for Embiid or liked Embiid and I like Jokic, you're not an idiot, right? Like there's a very real case for Embiid or Giannis as much as there is for Jokic. And I think that's not the way people see it because they look at a VORP, they look at a PER, they look at you know, win shares, and they don't contextualize what that means. They've now taken the game outside of the actual game just to numbers that they can sort. And that's not how I don't think advanced analytics should be used. So I'll start there. That was a long diatribe. MVP is not about who leads the advanced stats. If it was, we don't need voting. Just freaking spit out the formula and we'll just let the computer do it every year. And it's got, but to your point, it's gotten to the point where people are digging their heels in so deep and making their decision that, the guys who want Jokic are going to defend it any way they want. And, you know, one of the things Nate Duncan, right, dunked on, um, the nerdiest of nerdy basketball podcasts, not a huge fan, but they're smart guys, um, Danny and, and Nate. And Nate Duncan, I believe, had Giannis sixth on his list of of MVP oh my God. candidates, right? And he used all kinds of advanced metrics and things to justify his case. And at a certain point, I don't care what the Vorps say, what the Raptors say. Um, like, and, and granted, look, Jokic has been good by both the eye test and by the numbers. It's not a case of, oh, no one values the eye test, right? It, he's been both good across both. 
But we're getting to a point where we people are now leaning in the, oh, Jokic is actually a good defender because of his Raptor and his defensive win shares. <laughs> Advanced analytics on defense, first of all, are not great. He's an average defender. He's not piss poor, like maybe his detractors have you believe. But I think now they use the numbers to say he's a great defender. He's an elite offensive player. And he's miles ahead of these other guys when everything is really still on the margins. And so I think I personally don't have Jokic because I believe what you said. The narrative matters. I think narrative context matters. If it didn't, let the computer do it. If you don't want to have any of these outside variables any of these narratives impact the decision, let a computer pick the MVP, but we don't want that either. So just to kind of echo your point, I think we are just rabbit holing down just these conversations and and people are digging their heels deeper and deeper. And now you got race being thrown into it. It's ridiculous. And I think it's so close this year and, and it's anyone's game in the last 20 games. It, can I ask you, do you remember who the five guys were that he put ahead of Giannis? No. But it's like, um, okay. who did he have? It was Jokic, definitely Embiid. Embiid was there. Tatum, um, maybe Tatum, maybe Lillard. I think like would have squeezed in there. Yeah, like, that's probably the five. I mean, that's just, it's just by pure numbers, five. right? Like no context of anything else. And, yeah. and the thing is, I don't think you can completely discount. Like I said, that people have blind spots, right? Whether those are intentionally race related or race driven, probably not whether there are allowances made in their head because maybe like a Steve Nash is like, oh my God, look at what he's doing given his physical limitations, which is usually like the Hercules image that we think of basketball players. Steve Nash is bucking the trend, so let's vote for him. Nothing on the surface would have to do with the fact that he's white, but is there a potential that there is some relation with why they associate his greatness, you know, with kind of his diminutive nature? Possibly, right? I think it's okay to say that that could be part of the calculus. It doesn't mean every single voter is making decision that way at the same point should we box him out Jokic out because of Nash or because of Nowitzki things that have nothing to do with Jokic's candidacy and by the way are far less of a worthy case than Jokic has been not just this year but the prior two no that doesn't make sense either I just don't like the matter of fact like Reddit goes on first take and he's crushing Perkins and obviously Perkins does not necessarily do well in that debate and he gets here he hears about it on Twitter at the same time Jokic is like I mean, Reddick's like, he doesn't care about stats. I've spoken to Mike Malone. It's like, dude, what kind of like fucking fantasy world are you living in? So the coach of the Nuggets, who's obviously incentivized to, to make you think the greatest about Jokic, think, says he doesn't care about stats. Of course, that's what he's going to say. That that suddenly now has no uh, you know allowance for pushback. If Jokic wasn't putting up the stats that he was putting up, he wouldn't win MVPs. If he didn't win MVPs and make first-team All-NBAs and all the rest – he wouldn't have been eligible for the biggest contract in NBA history. And last I checked, he signed on that dotted line. He didn't give any money back, right? So as far as I know, those stats that he apparently has no desire to worry about led him to this big contract, which, again, if he didn't have any issue with it, why didn't he sign for a little bit less than the max, right? He took all of his money as he deserves. I very much doubt a player of his caliber, player of any caliber, doesn't care about his numbers. And even if that's the case, you can't prove that without a shadow of a doubt. And it's frustrating that we're adding this extra narrative that has nothing to do with the on-court performance. And and suddenly it's like, oh, Giannis threw the ball up off the backboard. Look, he cares about it. It's like, dude, what are we talking about? Like, it was a freaking joke. And it's something that any player does all the time. It was a runaway train, that whole narrative. And I was like, why are we spending so much time talking about this? It's it's ridiculous. And to your point, like, we don't know who, if he cares or not. And these guys all care. I don't care if he, Jokic is the most... Uh, 
chill dude who rides horses. Granted, there are levels to caring, but all these guys care. All these guys want to be good. Why does that matter? Um, the, the one thing I will say about the MVP race, right? Um, when we talk about a three-time MVP, to me, I think to win it the next success, the consecutive year and the next consecutive year, you need to have a really compelling argument. You can't just be doing the same thing. And I think last year, Jokic's compelling argument was they gave it to him on an exception basis, right? He was a six seed. Right. They rarely do that. Westbrook was one of the few exceptions. They gave it to him because mm-hmm. they he was that good on a team devoid of talent. Now, this year, we're awarding him and the Nuggets because they're the one seed. But last year, we rewarded him for doing that without those guys. Now you get Jamal Murray. You get Porter. You could argue that those guys actually contribute to the that increase in wins, the 10-plus wins they have this season versus last. But we're giving Jokic credit for that as well. I, I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, we're kind of giving him double Absolutely. credit um, for the improvement this year that was really driven by the addition of those guys. And we gave him credit last year when he didn't have those guys. So I think his case this year, as good as it is, the number one on, across all these advanced stats, the number one team, I just think Giannis has an equally good case and Bede has an equally good case. And and like you said, the thing I have the biggest problem with is the people making it sound like he is miles ahead because there are some advanced stats that show he is orders of magnitude better, essentially, yeah. than these other guys. But that does not make him orders of magnitude a better MVP candidate. I'm convinced the Nuggets try every year to just get the worst backup center they can and just kind of like take that to a new level. Once they signed DeAndre Jordan this summer, I was like, okay, there's clearly a bigger <laughs> plot at play to get this guy's on-off splits to look, yeah, most absolute gargantuan uh, difference that you can create. Um, this always reminds me, like, I remember Kawhi, the, the few couple years that he was turning into, like, that apex predator in San Antonio, kind of after the um, the All-Star, the finals MVP when he was still kind of a role player and then before he, you know, got all those injuries his on-off splits were not always that great. In fact, there was a couple of years that were like basically borderline zero. And it was just like the Spurs are a good machine. It doesn't take away from the fact that he's carrying them and he's a huge factor, right? You remember the 2017 MVP race with Westbrook and with Harden. Kawhi, I think part of the reason he lost that is because he didn't have as much singular dominance to his name the way those two did. Um, and again, I think we sort of overrate what MVP we, we, we overrate the amount that MVP should be about doing the most with the least. It doesn't always have to be with the least, right? It could be taking good to great or taking great to legendary. I think that's just as hard uh, than being like an amazing floor racer. So someone like Giannis, who, frankly, it's, it's, it's kind of wild to me that there isn't more uh, of a push for him because, A, he's beloved. Two, he's proven, right? He's, and three, he's been given hardware. So he's won finals MVP. He's had MVPs. And he is the best record in the league with without his second best player for most of the season. And even when Chris Middleton has played, he's been, you know, off the bench or playing limited minutes. So, again, I don't want to get into the actual argument itself, but I, I'm surprised by the groundswell that Jokic has received. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the way people do vote for MVP or do talk about it is kind of what you said at the top, which is let's just sort descending on on whatever single, like, all-encompassing stat we like. I mean, that's how baseball is pretty much doing it, right? Like, if you're not the number one guy in war, everyone will just yell at you until, (laughs) you know, the end of time if you win MVP. Like, Aaron Judge 
who hit 62 home runs on the number one seed or whatever in baseball, the fact that he got MVP over Shohei Otani was like <laughs> a crime was committed amongst like baseball writers. They were like furious. And so that's, it feels like the way we're trending. And I think that just takes a lot of fun out of like the very different environments that guys can flourish in. Absolutely. And, and baseball, look, we already know baseball. It's, it's great. And people enjoy it for the fact that the numbers can drive everything, but it also takes the fun out of some of those. The awards should be fun. They should be, there should be discourse. There should be debate. I don't think any of this Mm -hmm. is wrong, right? Like no one, there should be a healthy debate every year about MVP because the reality is every year there's two or three guys that are close to the top. It's, but it's turned into such a yelling match and a, you're an idiot because you don't follow the stats or you're an idiot or the flip side, right? Against Jokic, you're an idiot because Jokic hasn't won. It's ridiculous on both sides. So I think we're on the same page. Yeah. I'm tired of it. I'm I'm hoping that someone can kind of separate from the pack these next 20 games. But even if they do, there's no way this isn't going to be controversial at the end of the year. So, yeah. And the last thing I'll say on this before we move on is all of this would have been solved if Jokic just didn't win last year as a sixth seed. They just gave it to Joel Embiid, who was the scoring title champ, who had the number one team in the East, who was one of the best defensive players in the league. They just gave it to Embiid. This wouldn't even be an issue because I honestly think in a vacuum, just looking at this season, to me, it's between Jokic and Giannis. So, and, and, and maybe Embiid, that's fine too. But point being is if Jokic won this year without having won last year, I think it would have just been a healthier discourse overall. Yep. All right. So all this MVP talk, all this talk about the last 15, 20 games is really about playoff positioning. It's about who's going to close uh, with the most momentum, and frankly, for a lot of teams around the league, who's actually going to close in the playoffs versus not? And so today we thought we'd focus on the Western Conference because it is an absolute madness out there right now. If you just look at the current standings, right, you have, um, like I mentioned, the Nuggets leading the West by pretty pretty much, I think, seven, six and a half games after the loss tonight. And so um, – they're pretty much running away with the number one seed and will very likely clinch it in the next probably three weeks. The Kings, number two, which is amazing for a lot of reasons. Grizzlies, three. Suns, four. So it's really, it's like the Nuggets are by themselves. Two, three, four are all within a couple games. And then you have this craziness from five to 13. Warriors at 34 and 32. Timberwolves, 34 and 33. Mavericks, 34 and 33. Clippers, 34 and 33. Lakers at the nine seed, 32 and 34. Pelicans, 32 and 34. Thunder, 31 and 34. And then the Blazers and Jazz, 31 and 35. So it's craziness out West. Um, so what we thought we'd do, is, at least for the top, I think we're going to do it nine teams we're, we're, or 10 teams. We're going to disregard uh, the Thunder, Trailblazers, and Jazz with all due respect. Two of those three teams are trying to lose now, and the other is, is you know, just the Dame show every night without much around him. So Focusing on the 10 teams, we're going to go back and forth. Each of us are going to name for our specific teams one area for an optimism and one big question that we have facing uh, you know, the rest of this season as well as into the playoffs. So I'm going to get started on the Nuggets and then want to hear your thoughts here. Ready to go? Let's go. All right. So the Nuggets, I have, you know, they're healthy for the first time in three seasons, which, which is great. Jamal Murray has missed the last two playoffs. And the three-point shooting is number one in the league. They can absolutely light it up from all over the floor. Uh, pretty much four out of five players are way above average with three-point shooting in the starting lineup. And Aaron Gordon is pretty solid for a fifth guy, plus some shooting coming off the bench. 
that is the reason for optimism. And my major question is, it's back to Jokic. Can he really dominate for four straight rounds against a group of highly playoff-proven and elite wings who are naturally more predisposed to success in the postseason? I'm seeing a lot of single-digit shot games from him, low teens while they lose, or low teens while they barely win, a lot of dribble handoffs instead of kind of taking over. Is this guy going to be built for playoff production, not just making the right play in all cases? Yeah, so to your question, um, last two postseasons, Jokic actually had to up his his shooting, his scoring, because they just were so devoid of talent. He was scoring about 30 a game in the playoffs the last two postseasons on 22 shots per game. Now, 22 shots for Jokic, just to put that in perspective, he shoots 15 a game this year in the regular season. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he ups his scoring and ups that offensive intensity, it doesn't translate to wins in the postseason. He's not that kind of a guy. But at the same time, he can't play this more laid back, just facilitating kind of game uh, that he does in the regular season because that won't work either. So I think it's a very interesting question. Can he overcome that hump? Can this team overcome that hump? And I think they're going to have to depend on Jamal Murray. I think he's going to have to become the bubble Murray and give them those high ceiling games, 40, 50 points here and there to bail them out. Um, because Jokic is just not a guy like Embiid or Giannis who you can rely on to carry you offensively from a scoring standpoint, not at the passing standpoint, night to night. So I definitely think that's the biggest question. Um, but, you know, this is the best team they've had so far, so we'll see. Yeah, maybe I'm underrating how much Bubble Murray or Jamal Murray right now, who, by the way, is looking really He's, good over the yeah. last month or so. He's been balling like this guy's a proven playoff performer and he's got those chops, right? He's got those big shot chops and he can create his own. So I think that will help. It's just, you know what it is with Jokic and I love Jokic. Like I've mentioned, I've been, I feel like I've been critical of him indirectly, but he's, I'm worried he's turning into a little bit of like Chris Paul where Chris Paul almost felt like he was playing to make zero mistakes or even like, Aaron Rodgers in some cases where he plays to not throw interceptions. And that's not necessarily the way you have to play to win. You've got to take risks. You've got to accept that there's going to be some mistakes made with the benefit being, you know, being a little bit more aggressive and taking shots where you can and getting guys in foul trouble. You know, I always thought that Chris Paul's reason why he failed in the playoffs is he wasn't able to turn up his intensity notch because he only knew how to play one way, which is like take care of the ball, make the right play, make the right pass. And in the playoffs, when guys tighten up, you as a star of the team has to really take it to the next level. Now, to your point, Jokic has done that um, when he's had no other option. But when he has all this talent around him, it feels like he defers way too much, which are just jacking up the Raptor numbers and the LeBron <laughs> numbers and the Vorps and all that. But in the playoffs, like I just I'm curious to see like can he go against the Warriors and like hey Steph and is going shot for shot with him? Can he do that right? or against the Clippers and Kawhi's eating them alive in the mid mid-range. That's that's just something I'm like going to keep a very close eye on. That that's actually a great comp the the Chris Paul comp. Um you know, it even makes me think of LeBron against the Warriors in 20 mm-hmm. um 15 where look, LeBron is a smart player. He efficient player, passes, and yet he was shooting 40% sub 40% jacking up shots against that and, and it gave them a chance, a fighting chance in some of those games, right? And I think Jokic has to adapt his game in a way that 
it's, it's going to call for him because just playing the style, it's much easier to lock this down in the playoffs and they could easily get run out even in the second round of the West. I don't think it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, in the four or five spot, which is the second round, you might play Phoenix or Golden State. So totally agree with you there. I mean, not even might. You will play one of those you will. teams. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I just read the I just read the like standings. Like maybe Phoenix moves up to three, but at most, you know, maybe you play Memphis Golden State, yeah. right? Those kind of like by the time Ja maybe will be back, who knows? But like that's that's the thing. It's like and and what would you say? Like to me, three straight MVPs, the whole deal, they're fully healthy, no more excuses. Like at first I was thinking a conference finals trip would validate or vindicate him. I think it's got to be at least the NBA Finals, if not an actual title. That's the other thing, right? We we treat Jokic with kid gloves. I was super critical of Giannis during his whole stretch. I've been super critical of all of these guys. And I feel like Jokic, we're all like, oh, conference finals, that would be great. You know, that's all he needs. No, I, if you're going to get three MVPs, they need to get to the finals. You're the best team in the West. We can't give you MVP credit for being the best in the West. And then being like, it's okay, though, if you don't get to the finals because of all these other teams. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So I'm on and the same And I'm hearing that, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, Suns got Durant. It's like, dude, if you win three straight MVPs, how can you think of yourself as anything but the best player in the league? And if that's the case, then you're always going to be the best player yeah. on the floor, and there's absolutely no reason why. Why do we treat him with kick gloves? Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I think there – I mean, look, the racial part is – I mean, there are undertones there, maybe, but I think part of it is also just these guys who are quiet. He doesn't campaign. He kind of does his own thing. Um, he's more relatable. He doesn't seem like that mega superstar ego. Um, and and his game is kind of, it's hard to argue. Like someone like Giannis, his flaws were so apparent, right? Mm-hmm. His jump shot, his three-point shot. Um but a guy like Jokic, he doesn't really have any obvious flaws. He doesn't really draw attention to himself. So we don't feel that anger that we feel to other players. Even Luka, right? Luka still... It's, people love Luka, but I can see people start turning on him because of his attitude on the court. Yeah. Jokic has no such flaws. And so for that reason, we're more, I guess, likely to let him get away with these things. Actually reminds me a little of Kawhi too, which you know he's had a lot of oh. success. He just hasn't played a lot, but he gets some kid glove treatment too. And you know how I feel talk. about that treatment. I totally yeah. agree. Kawhi is a perfect example because he just shuts up and doesn't, you know, talk. And a totally different kind of player in that he's had a ton of playoff success and just not as much the regular <laughs> season. Regular season, so which is, I suppose, the way you'd rather have it if you had to pick. But okay, you're up next with the number two seed, your Sacramento Kings. All right, so my my question for them um, is going to be... Give me the optimism first. Okay, the optimism. Here's the optimism. So their fourth quarter performance, I think, bodes well for them down the stretch and in the playoffs. Their defensive rating is eighth in the league in terms of the fourth quarter. Um, They're good at creating deflections, turning turnovers into points. So for all their defensive issues, they're very good at the end of games. And coupled with that, they are the best clutch team in the league, and Fox is the best clutch player. So I think that going into the playoffs, that gives me confidence that they have the defensive chops, they can score in the half court when it's late game, that they can be a good playoff team. Now the question is, will their injury luck persist? I think this is a team that has benefited from health 
And I'm not saying like, injuries are random. You can't predict them. But these guys have all played heavy minutes. Sabonis has been playing through a significant hand injury. And while all the other teams in the Western Conference have had their stars rest or miss time, the Kings have been going gung-ho since day one. And for a team with no experience in the playoffs or majority of their guys with no experience, that's going to wear you down. And so I worry that a team that plays fast, high pace, that intensity, that level of execution on offense will start to falter in the playoffs. Yeah, man. I mean, this is obviously even as an objective bias. I wouldn't call myself objective. And the fact that we record every week, I'm still have a vested interest in the case. I don't know if that means I'm cheering for them or not, but I pay attention to them. Not like they're another random NBA team. But the clutch play, it's really... I'm past the point. Originally, I was going to make that my big question for them, but I'm past the point of even trying to unpack how they're this good in the clutch and how Fox seemingly makes every single shot he takes. And they somehow go from like this horrific defense to being able to lock up when it counts. I'm not going to make that question about it because I don't even understand what's happening. I'm just going to assume it just continues until someone tells me otherwise. I think that's fair. I think for me, the question becomes, so your injury luck, absolutely. At this point in the season, like I think, once I'm curious because I don't think that they're going to care if they have a two, three, right. Or two or three, I think the well, really four, right. Because all of those matchups could be any one of those random teams. They, it's not like they can play their way away from the warriors or away from, you know, whoever. So I just think they want home court advantage round one. And I don't think this Kings team after a 16 year drought is thinking much beyond round one, right. Realistically, no, they get there, you know, more power to them. I think the question with the Kings will be, and I think why I'm not as worried about the health factor is they're going to strategically rest down the stretch. Like you've already seen Fox take a couple, like they, you know, they had a long break. Uh, if he were to rest on, I think it was Tuesday night or Monday night. Yep. So they're like, let's sit him then. So it really gives them like five days off because of the way, you know, from when we play the next game, I think you're going to start to see that a little bit more. Sabonis, hopefully his thumb is coming along and, Really, those two guys, you have to put on ice, especially that last week of the year, until they're ready to go. They have such young legs. Short of a freak injury, I don't see them wearing down in that same way. Um, For me, it's the defense for the first three and a half quarters, right? Is that going to hold up against some of the juggernauts we're going to see? Like, if they get into a shootout, they can certainly hold their own. But, you know, it's versus Phoenix, and you kind of trust Duran Booker more, right? Or it's versus Dallas, you probably trust Luka Kyrie more, and that's kind of where I would say is the biggest question because I think the stadium's going to be rocking. The team's obviously going to have a ton of fun, but just basketball-wise, because I don't think it's crazy for them to win a round one matchup. No, they, they can definitely win it, um, but it's also not crazy for them to lose. And I think that's how Kings fans look at it. No expectations, but we also have hope that we can win. We don't think we're going to get boat raced. We think that this team is is good. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's there's a lot of other elements. You know, Harrison Barnes is old, first of all. Um, that's the one guy who's going to have to guard Durant. Like, that is going to have to guard any of these large wings. Uh, is Keegan he Murray, old? I mean, he's... Is he even is, 30? He's, he's what? He was drafted 2011? He's 31, okay. 2012. 2012. Yeah. Um, no, he's 30 exactly. He's turning 31, um... But he's got an old man game. He's not a guy who's like running up and down the floor, right? Harrison Barnes. So, and then you have Keegan Murray, who's a rookie, and you're you're relying on him. Malik Monk, as great as he's been, is erratic. So, there's a lot of question marks along the rest of the roster that make you um, wonder. But you know, at the end of the day, I think 
they are primed to be because of that fourth quarter performance because of Fox and the clutch. I think they can stay in these close games and give themselves a chance to win at the end. So last thing I'd say is like, it's very odd how Herder and Monk just kind of alternate when they want to go off. Um, it's frustrating. It's really they bizarre. Never have a good it's game. It's really bizarre to watch actually, because you're just like, didn't Monk have like 34 the other night? Why is he only taking like four shots today? Um, and it's like, didn't Herter play like 42 minutes the other night? Now he's played like 18. So hopefully those both those guys are both not off on too many games in the playoffs because you need one of them to be that third scorer uh, next to Fox and Sabonis. Um, okay, next up we have Memphis. I got to say, the reason for optimism is what they can look like with a John Morant return. And the reason for question is what if John doesn't come back um, this season? And I'm starting to hear that there's a possibility he's gone for the season. There's other reports saying he's going to be back in four or five games. A lot of off court stuff. We don't need to get into all that. Obviously uh, needless to say, that's been covered a lot. It's very weird. And I can't remember a star of his caliber going through this kind of thing in recent times. I'm trying to rack my brain for, you know, this type of public uh, situation playing out with one of the game's biggest stars. But nonetheless, I think their ceiling, as we saw last year versus the Warriors, really depends on whether or not Jaws healthy. Because if he's healthy, I think they can play with any team out West, right? I think they had a chance to beat the Warriors in the Western Conference semifinals last year if he doesn't get hurt. If they lose, if he, sorry, if he goes out, they'll be competitive. They'll play hard, but they're ultimately going to lose. They just don't have the firepower. So it's almost like a TBD incomplete until we know more about that situation. Yeah, this is one of the more bizarre situations I ever remember because usually when something stupid happens, you find out the details, there's an apology. I mean, he did apologize, but whatever. Suspension announced, boom, you kind of move through it. This Mm -hmm. one, it's a lot of cryptic messages. You know, um, the Grizzlies org, uh, Taylor Jenkins treating him like a victim in the situation. And I know a lot of people have adverse reactions, like, why are they coddling him, this and that? But at the same time, we don't know what he might be going through. There might be some more serious issues at hand. So it's hard to speak on that. Um, And without knowing the timetable, this is, I mean, this is the last stretch of the season. Even if he comes back, let's say, in five, six games, this is a distraction. It's not like you just come back and then everything is just rosy and, He'll get asked about it in press conferences. He'll get heckled by fans, maybe in in opposing stadiums. Like this could have an impact on the team. And so part of me wonders, will they just shut him down? Um, Because maybe if it, let's say, I mean, I can't speculate, but right. If it is something serious and mental health related or something else, it's not putting John the best light to throw him back into the midst of this really important time and then have him play in the playoffs. Now, I'm making no excuses for Ja. I think his behavior is inexcusable. I, I don't think totally. um, yeah. anything, you know, and like for a guy to be in that position and to to kind of do what he's been doing, it's irresponsible, um, especially when you have you somebody. You flashing a gun in a public setting in a strip club. Yeah. Like, there's some basic, like, parameters in society, no matter what any individual situation calls for, and that's, I'm pretty sure, one of them. And, and, and Stephen Adams had that, they had that player's, only meeting or kind of a meeting to talk about this. Clearly yes, this has been a yeah. problem. And um, you know how the last couple of months we've been talking about the, the grizzly struggling because Adams has been out. Mm-hmm. I think it's been more than that. And and this is maybe part of it. So 
it's it's funny. It's crazy how the Grizzlies have just cratered after the amazing start, and now you have lost Brandon Clark um, for the rest of the season. You're dealing with this. Um, Dylan Brooks is uh, now Draymond is. I don't know if you saw what he called Dylan Brooks out for today. Um, but that was anyways. very funny. Did you watch that video? It was. <laughs> <laughs> I hate Draymond. I hate Draymond, but it's funny because I, yeah, it's I like you hate Dylan both of them. More. So it's how do you? Yeah, but but anyway, Dylan I, Brooks more. Huh? I said I hate Dylan Brooks more, so I was like actually sad. I hate Brooks more. The They're both equally annoying. I hate Brooks more just because at least Draymond has done something in his career. Um, For sure, and he's LeBron's boy, so you know that matters. But. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, I mean, you're not going to hate LeBron's mouthpiece, that's for sure. So, so let me ask you this. So, um, I was going to say "gun to your head," but that's probably not a good, a good term for this. <laughs> if I had, if you had to give a number, how many games do you think it'll take for him to come back? I think he comes back in ten games, and that's what I'm thinking. But the weird thing is, I was listening to the Hoop Collective after you know even though I was warned that Mark Spears was on it, I still decided to listen because I had nothing else in the queue and I had like a couple more minutes left at the gym. So I was like, all right, whatever, let me turn it on. And Mark Spears, although having no real analysis or providing any actual value from a basketball um, standpoint, he is plugged in. And he floated that some of the things he had heard, which he didn't want to you know, sort of say on air, led him to believe that he didn't think Ja was going to come back this season. Yeah. And so now I have my guard up of like, okay, I don't know. Like, I feel like he would know. And so I don't know what that means. And so the question is, how far do the Grizzlies go? Oh, if he's not playing, first round fodder. Round one out. Yeah. 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 Because like, you have to go against thing, Golden right? State or right. Clippers Dallas or Phoenix. Or, yeah. The only way he, they could survive is if they somehow, as a blessing, draw. Um, Minnesota, but I don't think Minnesota is yeah. going to get up to the sixth spot, and I don't think I actually don't think Memphis, if he does miss that much time, can keep up with the Kings for number two. Believe it or not, just because I think they're yeah. going to end up taking on a bunch of losses. Like they have Golden State tomorrow night, so that could be a loss. Like I just think there's it might add up. Even a game like the Lakers without LeBron, they probably thought that that could be a win, and then Anthony Davis goes wild, right? So that's always that's always a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. All right, you're up with your with the fourth seed, the Phoenix Suns. All right, so uh, my question, or my optimism first, let's start there. I mean, it, it's obvious, but they look absolutely devastating on offense. Um, mm-hmm. and what stands out, what stood out to me was the sheer size of the lineup. When they have Aiden on the floor, Durant, I mean, Booker's a, kind of a big guard. Um and I, I just think that mid-range game, we obviously knew that was where this team has already been lethal. And that shot chart from their first couple of games where they're just lighting it up from anywhere on the court, you can't you can't do anything on defense. All these guys can shoot from three. All these guys can shoot mid-range. They can get to the rim. Um, there's too many ways they can score and tilt the defense one way or another that makes this offense feel unstoppable, it will be unstoppable in the playoffs. Now, the question for me is, what is their core playoff rotation going to be? Um, you know, Okogi had earned a starting nod. And then, you know, you got Campaign, Wainwright, Corey, Torrey Craig, Terrence Ross at 24 points today, TJ Warren. You have a bunch of just guys. 
And it'll be interesting to see who they trust down the stretch and who plays that like that seventh and eighth man. Um, mm-hmm. But then the other question I have as a follow up is, will it even matter? <laughs> like these guys are getting so many open looks. As long as you can hit a couple threes, Terrence Ross, TJ Warren, it doesn't matter who's there. These guys are just guys. So, but I think for me, it's more how will they? What is that eight that they're going to run, and who do they trust down the stretch um, to play with these guys? Yeah, so look, the offense is instantly special, right? Which I think we could have all predicted. We've talked about how malleable, um, you know, Durant is. We talked about what an insanely good fit that would be playing with Booker and playing with that traditional point first point, pass first point guard in Chris Paul. And then Aiton, right, just doing all the dirty work. He may not get as many shots, but life is going to be easier for him down low as well. The, 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 the rotation question is really good. I had the same one. And, you know, to me, the question really becomes, and this is where it becomes hard, I do think it's going to matter because you have to know who to play if you're getting a bunch of inconsistent shooters that you're kind of trotting out there, right? Where one day it could be a Kogi, then it could be Wainwright, then it could be TJ Warren, then it could be Terrence Ross. It's really difficult for a coach to be able to have that sense without letting it get away from him, right? Like Monty Williams, if he sees three missed shots from a Kogi on wide open threes, is that enough to pull the trigger? Is that even the right move to do it so soon, right? And you saw this in the playoffs last year with Grant Williams versus the Bucks, and they gave him that treatment. What did he do in game seven? I think he hit seven or eight three-pointers, and that put the Bucks away. You got to get that kind of performance, but you have to be able to do it consistently enough, and Grant Williams was pretty good in last year's playoffs such that you don't really have as many questions because even one spot can can ruin a team's offensive flow and ultimately potentially cost them the series if they ride the wrong guy. Yep. Um, so it's going to be really fascinating to watch because you have four entrenched players. Then you have probably some version of like campaign. And I'm just looking to see like, you know, campaign's going to be out there. Damian Lee's going to get some minutes. Biombo. So it's kind of like, Maybe that's three guys, but you probably aren't playing Biombo in certain series. You know, you might not even play, you know, Damian Lee, who's another sort of streaky shooter. So I don't know, man. I mean, Durant and Booker can make a lot of guys look really good, but you got to be able to knock down shots consistently for four rounds straight. I'm fascinated to see kind of who, who, who those players are. And then secondly, I'd say whether this team holds up. Like Durant freaking, he's like a Mr. Glass right now, right? Yeah. We know Chris Paul's not the model of health in the playoffs, so that's the other piece of this. That, that's the thing, right? Like, if one of these guys sits a game or two, um, and that's totally feasible, Chris Paul or Durant tweaks something, I don't know, um, then those guys matter. It matters who steps up from that bench, and you can't afford to lose a game or two in the West. It's going to be tight. You might be playing the Warriors, the Clippers, teams with a lot of talent, even though they're not successful. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so... It, but at, like the reason I said, will it matter is because sometimes it does matter, but sometimes we overthink that end of the rotation piece. Um, and, and these guys are getting so many open shots that maybe all of them will shoot well and it doesn't matter who plays. So we'll see. I think the difference is we're not talking about eight, nine, 10. We're talking about five, six, seven. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, campaign is number but- is probably six, right? And then you've got, Campaign six, but therein lies potentially part of the problem. That's probably yeah, exactly that, that is the problem. Um, Durant, I mean, sorry, Booker, a tidy seventeen of twenty three today for forty four points without Durant. Yeah, so yeah, thirty at the half. I mean, it just shows you, um, and that's an OKC Grant team that is yeah 
they're kind of punting. Although Shay didn't um, play today. Oh, Shay okay. did not play, no. All right. Next up, we have the, the defending champion Golden State Warriors, who lo and behold are in the five hole after a crazy turbulent season. So the reason for optimism, Steph is back. He kind of looks like him, his old self, pre-injury, whatever that weird leg injury was. They're finally trending towards full health. At the end of the day, they still have the best starting lineup in the league, best five-man unit. Uh, Wiggins has still been out, and he's going to come back, I think, at some point. But he's not injured. He's away from some type of personal matter, so it's not like he's recovering from anything. Um, and then the question is, like, what is going on on the road? They just cannot win. They cannot put together – four good quarters of basketball. They look like a totally different team. And I think the only two teams with worse road records this season are Houston and San Antonio. So as a lower seed, they're going to have to win at least one game on the road in every series uh, all the way to the title. At the same time, I don't know if you can count them out given the cachet of experience and having you know an all-world player and staff playing at his best right now. Yeah, the road record is interesting. Some of that might be bad luck, but it's so different. Like, there's such a big gap yeah. that there's got to be something systematic there. That's a reason. Um, those, those are good questions. I mean, I think the optimism. Forget about Steph. I think Clay seems to be fully back, um, and he lets us know about it, and the, the world lets us know about it every <laughs> five minutes. Um, but I think that's what gives you optimism. The the question. On top of that question, the road, I just wonder if they, where's the mojo? You know, like they're just, they just don't feel the same. The whole Draymond yeah. Pool thing, you saw that, how he got upset at Pool. I don't know if you saw that clip. I did, um, yeah. Right? And then kind of just walked away, quit on the play. They've got a weird vibe to them. And, and look, vibes, you can say when they go into the postseason, it doesn't matter. But when things get tense, I just feel like this Draymond is combustible pool not everyone trusts him even Steph has gotten frustrated with him this year so I I just think this team is um they might be in more trouble than we think but I, I'm still not going to count them out well here's what I don't want to do I don't want to be like all pounding my chest over the Warriors being dead and then they come back and absolutely go like Kaiser Soze for four straight rounds and then win another title which would be actually my destruction as a human being so I don't want to even put that idea out there I'm just going to show them respect that they deserve as four-time champs until someone sends them home. And until that happens, you won't hear from me and, without a lot of Warriors criticism. And if there's any year for them to pull that off, it's this year where you're a six seed, you play mm-hmm. the three seed Kings, then you play the two seed maybe Grizzlies with no jaw, then you play the Nuggets who haven't shown anything. And before you know it's you're in the finals, really like, so. it's a very easy yeah. or feasible path, right? Well, that's the funny thing, right? Because I think you've, you may have heard like, there is some murmuring around the league about teams trying to get into that six hole um, to play the Kings. And then now really probably the six or seven, right? Cause you might play Memphis without job. Yep. Um, no disrespect to those teams, but you'd rather that than playing the Suns or the Nuggets round one, mm-hmm. probably. And suddenly that turns into a fairly attractive path, right? Like, I'm even looking at the Mavericks who have had a world of trouble and we'll get to them in a second. If they can find a way into that seven spot, you're picking Luca every day in some of these series. You know what I mean? Like some of these matchups are really set up nicely. So I'm ultra interested to see where the Suns end up because the Suns, I think, are now um, two games back of the Grizzlies. So they very easily could be three or could even be two by season's end just based on how things go. And that's where it's going to be pretty hard to like kind of pick and choose your matchups. Mm-hmm. 
So on that note, next up is um, who do we got? The Timberwolves, aforementioned Minnesota Timberwolves. So what do you got for me on that? All right, so the optimism, look, Cat's coming back. The Cavalry, uh, the offensive burden, I think, on Ant is starting to starting to take its toll on him. <laughs> um, and I think now with Cat coming back, you also have to hope that Conley has been a little bit of a stabilizer for them on offense. And that could even help Cat in, in his game. You don't have D'Angelo Russell and all these guys competing for shots. You have more of a floor general. Um, but now the question is also, Cat's coming back. The Wolves mm-hmm. have started to click. And the spacing issues that were there early in the season between Gobert and Cat are going to arise again. And the crazy thing is, the best role for Cat might be to park behind the three uh, more as a spot-up shooter, at least as he gets acclimated and they figure this out. Because yeah. um, right now, the key question is if he disrupts what they've got going on, they've been playing pretty well, they're in the thick of things, you can't afford to have this weird, awkward fit with the two and, and cause yourself a four or five losses in the next 10, right? It, they just can't. Their margin of error is so slim, so it'll be interesting how they rework him into the lineup and whether they do anything differently. Or do you just say, screw it, we'll figure it out. The talent's the talent, and uh, we'll do what we did early in the season, except this time it'll work better. Yeah, they almost have to turn him into, like, Cleveland Kevin Love yeah. to, to not disrupt what they have going on. Because the biggest question, the, the biggest thing about them is they didn't look good with them on the floor together. It's not like, you know, they looked good, it was promising, and then he got hurt, and they're, like, kind of treading water until he gets back. They were bad with him. Yep. And they've kind of been like weirdly about the same without him. Like now their defense is riding in a form. But if you look at the record, I think they were like 10 and 11 with Cat or something like that. Yeah. And they're just over 500 now without him. Ant's gone on to his own. But you could see it. At, I forget which game I was watching where they actually absolutely put him in hell. Was it the Golden State game um, where the Warriors had that big comeback and Ant like couldn't figure out how to like get out of the double team and he was just getting rocked because they were putting so that? much pressure on him? Oh, yeah. I don't know if it was the worst, but yeah, maybe. It was one of those games I was watching Timberwolves and like Cat was just, I mean, Ant was just struggling so much because there's nobody else to throw the ball to. Yep. So he's going to like the safety valve of Cat, who's obviously 50, 40, 90 elite offensive player. Um, But I think defensively, what's it going to look like? And then what's the spacing going to work like? Because even though he's a great shooter, he's a bit, you know, plundering. So it's not exactly like the foot speed is going to, you know, keep you from catching up with him. Mm-hmm. Um. Mike Conley has helped, uh, I think. You know, he's kind of organized the offense a little bit. Still kind of a wild trade in hindsight to just give up a guy that's like eight years younger. But, you know, at this point, Tim Conley's made his bed with his Gobert trade, so he's just going all in. Um, I'm excited. I I hope they stay in the playoffs because I just think Ant is one of those guys that rises to the moment. Um, But, you know, they have a fairly tough schedule, and who knows kind of how it's going to shake out. But... The Lakers are breathing down their necks. I think the the, the next couple of weeks kind of holding down the four till Cat comes back will basically tell the story of the season. Yep. All right. Got the Mavericks. So the biggest reason for optimism is with Kyrie and Luka, this is about as explosive of an offense as we have in the league today. They're impossible to stop. Um, and the shooting, the, the, the sort of – really indefensible two ball handling strategy has worked. 
they figured out this my turn, your turn thing offensively for the most part. The question or the risk is every team they play turns into the Mavs offense when they play the Mavs. And so we're looking at a lot of games in the 120s, 130s, like even today versus the Pelicans, even though Brandon Ingram got hurt at half, they couldn't get a stop. CJ McCollum went nuts. And that's just going to be the, the issue that they fixed their defense last year, which is what got them a conference finals run. And now it looks like it's back to square one. They obviously lost personnel with Dorian Finney-Smith at the door and Kyrie Irving in. But, man, this is not good enough to, to work in the playoffs as it currently stands. Yeah, um, totally right. The defense is a major, major question. And they need to bank on Maxi Kleba returning to form, right? He, he had that injury. He was out for a while. He has really been their defensive anchor as the big man who can shoot, who can rebound, and who can play good D. And I think he's kind of the hope that this can get better and at least not mm-hmm. a complete sieve. But even him, like I don't, he's not some all generational defender. It's it's just he was he's good for that system. So I I agree. That's the biggest question. And their offense, as good as both those guys are, the one the back and forth, it, it looks clunky sometimes, and it's it doesn't inspire the most confidence. But you know the talent is in the crunch time, even though they haven't been amazing in crunch time, both those mm-hmm. guys can get their shot and they should yeah. have won that game against Phoenix or at least tied it, sent it to overtime. Right. Luca had that bunny that yeah. he missed. Yeah, um, he missed yeah. So they're in these games, they'll be fine, but you're right. That defense, uh, it, it just makes it hard to trust them. Yeah. They don't blow anyone out because even Utah, like uh, last night, right. Just hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. They barely went at home. And come back and lay an egg versus uh, the Pelicans tonight. So I don't know. Like, there's very little margin for error. Continue to repeat that. So hopefully they can keep it together because that's another team <laughs> that the playoffs. Like, it would feel very unfun if the playoffs took place without Luca and Kyrie in it. Yep. All right, you have the Clippers, the Los Angeles Clippers, up next. Look, the Clippers' optimism. It's it's very. I mean, it's obvious. To me, it's you have Kawhi, Paul George, you have two wings, two way wings, uh, and in the playoffs, we haven't gotten a chance to see them healthy since the bubble. We have not seen healthy Kawhi and Paul George. Well, I mean, they they were healthy at one point, but Kawhi got injured, right? We haven't seen them for a full postseason healthy, and I think there's always optimism with that type of talent where wings matter, defense matters, um, and Kawhi can create his own shot. And he's had some games now in the last couple of weeks. Where he's had that 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 ceiling kind of game, right? Um, against the Kings was a great example where he he dropped, was it forty or thirty eight? Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's optimism. I think the question is, I really you know how I feel about Russell Westbrook. Yeah. I, his stats don't look bad, but he has disrupted what they do. Um, they play. We're playing a lot better with Terrence Mann. Uh, I don't think the offense. It, it, he still seems like he's kind of force fit into that offense. He leads, creates a lot of turnovers. He's you can't in the playoffs. I mean, we're already seeing it in the regular season. They're going to back off of him and dare him to shoot. And he's scared now to shoot. And Draymond talked about that openly. So I think they've got a Westbrook problem. They need to rein in his ego and reduce his minutes and bring Terrence Mann back. The worry is, will they do that? Because Westbrook needs to be coddled and, uh, Paul George vouched for him, right? So that's the interesting question for them. 
Yeah, it's 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 super um, concerning and telling that they thought with twenty five games left that you bring in a guy of Russell Westbrook's like aura, right? And I mean that in not necessarily a good or a bad way, but that's just the reality. Like he'll never be a bystander on the court. You're gonna know he's out there for for better or worse. And so the fact that they decided that that was the right move. I think is indicative of how much they didn't like what they had going forward. Even after the trade for Bones Highland, Eric Gordon, and Mason Plumley, they still went out and made that addition and now pushed Highland basically out of the rotation. So we'll see how much Lou is flexible with this going in the playoffs. Like obviously Russell does, Westbrook doesn't make 47 million like he did on the Lakers. And so the tie to him is much less, um, uh, you know, much lower stakes if they want to move off of him or want to bench him for certain rounds, but he still has a big presence on the team and he has a lot of respect with Paul George and, and Kawhi to a lesser extent. So all that to be said, I think um, they have the talent. They just have not done it in any level of consistency for the last like two, three years. That makes me suddenly want to be like, yeah, I'm all aboard because the bigger problem is like they're starting to lose games or they're still playing inconsistently when Kawhi has been awesome. Mm-hmm. And that's the concern because Kawhi, at least when he wasn't playing or wasn't playing well, you could point to like, well, when this guy gets back to old Kawhi, then watch out. And then the retort can be like, well, how do we know there even is the old Kawhi left, right? Because he's eight post ACL, been out for 18 months, ton of leg injuries. Clearly that guy is back, right? When you saw what he did against the Kings or several other games and they're still not winning. So what do you make of that? Right. And I think, Paul George has been up and down and he's had his, his fair share of like four for 16 clunkers getting ready for the playoffs. But that's, that's the big question. It's like, if you can't win when Kawhi's playing, being Kawhi, then what else was your plan B? Cause that was sort of the whole point. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's the scary thing. They're They're always been a known as a team that can get points from anyone on the roster can survive. There were games when they lost Kawhi, they went to the Western conference finals and, you know, Paul George, even when Paul George had some up and down games, they were able to w- withstand all that. This team, mm-hmm. this iteration does not feel like that. It is overly dependent on these guys. Um, and it's I. It's just hard to trust Kawhi. Like we still, he still load manages. We don't know what he's going to be like in a full, intense seven-game playoff series. Um, you assume he'd be yeah, fine? Yeah, you play every other night round one, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you're going to be playing 40, yeah. 40 so, 42 minutes. I don't tonight. know. You're going to get a plus game every night from Kawhi. I don't know if we can expect that anymore. Maybe we can't, but there's nothing to show that we can. So um, yep. it'll be interesting. All right. Last two teams here. We'll go quick because these two teams are technically not in the top eight, but they are in the plan. <laughs> the Los Angeles Lakers, this uh, little uh, can do attitude team uh, out of a small city in California, not often covered too much, but we'll try to give them a little bit of shine on this podcast. Um, the reason for optimism for me is if this team was their opening day roster, I think they're maybe a top four seed. Uh, I think the pieces just fit really well. And assuming you had a healthy AD and LeBron with the level that they both played at this season when they're on the court, I think that's very realistic given the you know turbulence of the West. So they finally got it right. They made the right plays um, in terms of the roster moves. The question is, is this just too little too late um, with no LeBron for a couple of weeks? I think when you look at the Jazz, the Thunder, and the Blazers, I don't think that the Lakers will miss the play-in. I just think that it's there for them. And as long as they play kind of 500 basketball or close to it, they'll probably be right there by the time LeBron comes back. 
but it's going to be a really uphill crime. You got to go win two games on the road versus good teams. There's certain potential for those teams to be the Clippers, who they've struggled with, the Mavs, who they've struggled with, or the Warriors, who would be like in their home where they don't lose. And so there's a lot of things that have to go right for them to actually get into the top eight. I think they'll have a shot at it with LeBron back by then. I just wonder if it's like the hole is, is too hard to dig out of and this team ends up like ninth and, and misses out. It It is going to be hard for them to – I mean, I think after the LeBron injury, it's I don't think there's any more optimism for them. But like you said, they've put together a good team and the, the proof is in the pudding, right? Because um, even without D'Angelo Russell, who you, we thought would need some of their, his offense because LeBron is out, They've been able to be competitive. AD is back to the early season AD. Vanderbilt, like, I think Vanderbilt's been amazing for them. But the way he's talked about, you think he's dropping 25-10 with elite defense every night. Like, he's <laughs> yeah. good, but um, but he fits so well, right? That team just, they all click together. I, I just think the, the problem is um, you, you can't keep punting these years, right? It's not punting, but next year, what, you're going to magically get a full season of LeBron? No. It's only getting worse. You're going to get a full season out of AD? No. So this is this is pro- only going to get worse as we go on and on. And if there's any year, like you said, if they had started this year, if they had made these moves in the offseason and, uh, you know, hindsight's 2020, but this could have been a very completely different outcome for them because with the West being the way it is, you're right. Top four seed was definitely in play and title contention was in play. Yeah. I will say one thing that in, in Rob Polinka's defense is that I thought he did an amazing job with the way he converted that one pick into all of these different things. And he also only has one year of that pick being outstanding because it converts to two seconds. So that's point one. Point two is it's unlikely that that trade could have been all done preseason because it involved the, the Timberwolves deciding the D'Angelo Russell experiment wasn't going to work which they weren't going to do this summer, which otherwise they would have put him in the deal for Gobert to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. And brought Mike Conley back or whoever it was. So if they wanted Conley at the time and they thought that Russell wasn't going to work, they would have just made that part of the deal. The fact that they didn't meant that this really couldn't have happened until midseason anyway. Yep. All right. Last up, the New Orleans Pelicans. Sad state of affairs there. Uh, yeah, there's not. I don't know what there's to be optimistic about, but um, you know, I'll I'll go. I'll give a. I don't know if you like him or not, because uh, he went to your rival. Trey Murphy has been nice for them. Um, you know, a guy you get in the 17th pick later in the draft last year to add him to the list of kind of these young players they've been able to draft to who've shown promise potential. This last month, he's had some really good games. He's he's getting good playing time. Um, you know, he's been playing the last three games, 38, 37, 38 minutes and putting up pretty good, pretty good numbers. And I think it's another piece for them to, moving forward on a rookie contract um, that they got late in the first round. So I think they continue to nail these these draft picks um, or they have enough talent now on the roster. Now, the obvious question is what is happening with Zion and no one knows and it's alarming that it doesn't look like he's going to come back this season. There's no timetable. There's no sense of optimism coming from the organization or anything to indicate that, look, it's not that bad. He'll be back. We'll make a run. And this is a guy already prone to injury. So who knows what is happening, but I'm getting worried about Zion, a guy who 
it this seems like this might plague him his whole career. It's too early to say that, but the early returns are not good. So, and that changes everything about this, the way you look at this Pelicans team. Because at first you're like, this is a team that was killing it early in the season, ready to compete. They've got vets, Valanciunas, McCollum, Ingram is relatively young. They got young pieces. They got a nice balanced roster, but without Zion, all of it falls apart. Yeah, I mean, look, Zion's played in 114 career games. Uh, assuming he does not play again in this regular season, that's about 36% of the available games through four seasons. Not what you want to see from your number one pick, who, when he has been on the court, has been absolutely deadly. Uh, to your point on Trey Murphy, it's so interesting that, like, and, and this is a classic example of how far ahead of our skis we get. Last year at this time, it was all about Herb Jones. Bill Simmons was telling us he was the next Scottie Pippen crossed with Kawhi Leonard, crossed with, like, you know, the just <laughs> freaking Gumby. And suddenly it's like Trey Murphy might actually be the better prospect. And oh, by the way, he's two years younger than Herb Jones. And so it's just interesting how all that develops. Yeah, I mean, look, Ingram's been in and out of the lineup. McCollum's been there, but like they're just not, they don't quite have that same juice, that same magic that they did last year. And when they were on the court, I mean, that's the crazy thing, right? They didn't even really get a chance to play with Zion and Ingram. Yeah, Ingram was injured. And I'm actually, while we're talking, I'm just going to look at like three-man lineups from the season to see if they played any time at all together, which is so nuts to even think about. But the reality is when they had Zion healthy, they were 23-12. and 12. I think they were the number two seed in the West at one point. So it's been a very fall, hard fall from Grace. If he doesn't come back, which let's assume he won't, you're looking at another wasted season and one more year towards – I mean, you got him under contract, but some of the other guys are getting older. Valanciunas, yeah, McCollum. Exactly. You have like some of these assets that are starting to convert, and they're not that like rosy when they're actually like role players versus like these tantalizing draft picks. So there's a lot for them to be fi- for them to figure out, and 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 a lot of it's going to be driven off of um, you know what we get from Zion. I'm just looking at it now. Those three only played 171 minutes together this season, and they're plus 16. Points per 100 possessions. So devastating combo when they're on the floor. We just never get to see them. Yeah, that's like, what, four games worth? Five games worth? Yeah. yeah. Um. So, all right, that is the West in a nutshell. Again, I don't know how much there is to say about these other three teams that are hanging around. Like, the Thunder are waiting probably one more year to really make a run. SGA is all-NBA level. I hope he doesn't lose all-NBA status by them resting him down the stretch. You know, Dame is now playing his way up to first-team All-NBA caliber, right? He's been bananas, including that 71-point game. And the Jazz, like, Lowry is kicking. They're they're fine. They're just not really trying, right? They, they kind of want to slide down to maybe 12 or 11 just to get a little bit better chance at a Scoot or a, uh, or a Victor. Yeah, the Jazz, at this point, they've lost four in a row. So they're... For them, they should just kind of punt and try to get slightly better odds, right? Of course, you're talking about the difference between maybe like an 8%, 10%, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, the West is interesting, man. This is uh, an exciting year. You know, the second seed may not even win 48 games. Um, And to put that in perspective, I don't know if you remember 2008, the Warriors, the following year after the We Believe Warriors, missed the playoffs with 48 wins. They were the ninth seed. Mm Um, so it's, it's just crazy how packed it is. And look, 
perfect year for the Kings to to try hard and be good because uh, we might get that two seed, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, you got to put yourself in as good of a chance as you can to not just break the 16-year playoff streak, actually win a damn series. How about that? That would be that would be as close to like pure satisfaction a fan base can have short of winning a championship. Oh, it dude, a winning a playoff series would be like it would feel like a title. They'd yeah, have a I mean, parade. You were, we we talked about this. You're 34. The last time the Kings made the playoffs, you were basically just a legal adult. Yeah. Like your entire adult life has passed without you seeing a playoff appearance. So I'm rooting for it. I really, really want to see it because I want to see what that stadium looks like. Game one. Oh, yeah. The, um, the only worry I have, and this is, of course, getting way ahead of myself, right? Worrying about matchups and stuff. But if we play the Warriors. Like where to do the parade. No, no. <laughs> if we play the Warriors. What happens with the Warriors-Kings games is Warriors fans find the tickets cheaper in the Kings arena, so they drive up the prices, and it gets filled with like half Warrior fans. Um, mm. So that game would be insanely expensive. It'd be like, I don't know, $800 for game one. I don't know, for nosebleed seats. Something insane. Are you going to try to go? Oh, dude, I'm yeah. I don't care what it is. You could charge me three I'm paying. I'm going to game the first home game they have, whether that's game one or game three. I'm sure that's already available, right? People are starting to sell it, but they're they're selling it at absurd prices because they're trying to get suckers to kind of just isn't jump that on what it. We're talking about, huh? I said that's what it might be. This isn't that what we're talking about. Wait, what? It might be insanely, insanely. It might be, yeah, yeah. But usually, what happens is once everyone starts selling, prices get driven down a little bit. Um, Dude, there is one ticket available on SeatGeek right now. Just single ticket. Isn't it eight hundred or something? How much is dollars? Yeah, eight hundred eleven dollars. Yeah. Oh, also in my uh, tour of the American basketball stadiums, I'm going to be in New York next weekend. Going to go see MSG. Yeah, Joker, MSG Nuggets, Knicks. Wow. Yeah. I the the worry is they're playing the Knicks Saturday at one and then the Nets Sunday at one. I'm hopeful they just all play for the Knicks and then sit for the Nets. Mm. But you just never know how they're going to do this load balance. You don't know. Load management thing. But uh, tomorrow, Knicks Kings on uh, national television. Yes, sir. That That's going to be fun. going to be fun. I feel so. like that is a clear over game. Whatever the over is, <laughs> just take like it. it's going to go higher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, that's a wrap for us. Long episode, but again, we missed last week. We swear we're trying not to do that moving forward, given the season's almost on the precipice here. But please rate, review, and subscribe to Thicker Than Hoops. Please follow us on all social media platforms. We will talk to you next week.